1 John chapter 2, verse 28, all the way over to chapter 3, verse 10. Turn there with me if you would. You'll find it second to last page in your program, on your Bible that you brought with you in paper copy or digital form. Stand with me if you would and hear God's word read this morning. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sin in order that, and in in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this... It is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not have, who does not love his brother. This is God's word. It's absolutely true. It's given to us in love. Let's pray. Both for the one who speaks and the ones who hear, would you, O God, pour out abundant grace? Because you love us, challenge us. Gosh, rebuke us if necessary. Not to leave us shattered, but to make us whole, to make us more like Jesus. That's what we want. And we only trust you to do it. So do it for your glory and our good, we pray in his name. Amen. Be seated. All right, so let's, let's talk for just a minute about a problem. Instant replay is everywhere. I don't know if you saw it, but they're using it in baseball now. Why? I don't know. I get that there are things that that replay can be helpful for. 
When I was in high school, after we would participate in a marching band competition, we'd go back and we would watch the tape. We'd listen to the judges' comments. Now, if we did well, that was a really awesome time to be like, yeah, that was awesome how that came together just like that. It wasn't as awesome on those times when we, when there was something that went wrong. And you just see it on the tape unfolding in slow motion, almost like a car accident. I have to confess something to you. I have a whole catalog in my head of instant replay. All the things that I wish that I could take back after they came out of my mouth. All the ways, all the times where sin has gotten the better of me. And in those moments, I'm ashamed. But do you know what I do? What I do instead of what I ought to do is I go back and I nurse those times of embarrassment and shame over and over again. I replay the tapes over and over and over again. can't believe how dumb I was. can't believe how stupid I was. can't believe. Well, you get the idea. I am my own worst critic. I bet you are your own worst critic as well. False teaching has crept into the church where John is writing. And John is writing this part of the letter in order to get this one idea really crystal clear across. And that is, if you are a child of God, you're righteous. It's a really challenging text to outline, by the way. John says similar things seven different ways. He doesn't necessarily follow a train of thought. So here's how I'm going to break it out for us this morning. I'm going to say we need to study what it means to be who you are. And there's a nuanced way I'm going to say that. And then I want you to behold who you are. Be who you are, behold who you are. It'll make sense, I think, as we go through the text. The idea here is that we are to be righteous people. Now, if you listen to what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, listen to, what, listen to what Paul says. He says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But... 
you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Listen, if we were to get the church of God and somehow found a way to create one big group photograph, the caption of the group photograph could just as easily be, and so were some of you. Your place, my place, our plight is that none of us are deserving partakers of the grace that we have been shown. And yet, in God's mercy, God has shown up and robbed us of our sin and robed us in his righteousness. That's the good news of the gospel. And because God loves us, we have been changed. And so what John is now saying is because you've been changed... There's going to be an outward manifestation. There's going, to be, there's going to be evidence that you have been changed. So when I say to you, Christian, be who you are, this is not some sort of command to, to get it together. This is, this is calling you by your given name. This is calling you by your given identity. This is describing you by your new birth. It is that the Spirit of God has brought you to new life in Christ. God has breathed new life into dry bones, placed a beating heart in the cavity of a stone-cold heart, caused the tangerine tree to change into an apple tree. being brought from death to life and being sanctified or being changed into Christ's likeness is all a work of God. It's done because he loves you and he continues to love you and he's not stopped loving you and he's not done with you. This is what God is doing. God is at work. He's loving you the way he always has and he always will by changing you. So you have to hear this. When we say that the, that, the, that the declaration of be righteous, this comes um, not as a precondition to the favor and the smile of God. Righteousness comes because you have the favor, the smile of God. Verse 29. We're going to jump around, by the way. So if you're, if you're one of those linear people that wants me to go like just 28, 29, and on down. This one's going to frustrate you. I'm sorry. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. John writes that if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Perhaps some of you can identify with this quote by John Newton. John Newton, the, uh, the famous um, uh, slave trader and uh, later convert to Christianity, um, who wrote this. He said, if I ever reach heaven, I expect to find three wonders there. First, to meet some that I had not thought to see there. Second, to miss some that I had expected to see there. And third, the greatest wonder of them all, to find myself there. See, John's writing this. He's writing these things in order that we might know. We might know with absolute certainty things about ourselves and about others. Because here's, here's John's, one of John's main theses. Right belief 
and right practice are inextricably tied. Right belief and right practice go so close together that you're not going to have one without the other. So if you say you have right belief, but practice isn't there, you probably don't actually have right belief. If you say you have right practice, but the belief isn't there, you probably don't have belief or practice, right? You get it? So for John, uh, if you're going to throw out technical terms, orthodoxy and orthopraxis, right belief, right practice. It's easier to say right belief and right practice. Righteousness, when it comes to Christians living a righteous life, righteousness is not something that's just kind of buried deep down in there. Like, you, you know, you'd look at me and go, okay, I see that he's of European descent, probably Northern European. They didn't go outside very much, his ancestors. When I go to check the box on the form, they don't have a box for the skin tone of translucent. You would not look at me and know that there is a fraction somewhere in my ancestry of being Native American. It's just, you wouldn't look at that and go, oh, well, that makes total sense. The same way, righteousness is not the the thing that you would look at the Christian and go, really? You're a Christian? You live righteously? That's not what happens. If you're a Christian, righteousness is not something that's buried way on down deep in your heart. It's something that overflows into your life. It's something that's so incredibly obvious that everyone around you can see it. It springs forth and shows itself in every aspect of our lives, whether anyone is watching or not. Look at what John says down in verse 6. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. See, there's a, there's a negative connotation. There's a negative way that John says, look, if you're righteous, you're going to be righteous. If you keep on sinning, verse 9, he says that no one born of God uh, makes a practice of sinning. Why? Because God's seed abides in him. We'll come back to that idea of God's seed abiding in us in just a minute. Verse 10. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. See, he keeps throwing that love his brother part in there too for, I don't know, just to mess with us, I guess. Or maybe because it's true. It's not just enough to love God, but the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Here's the, here's the clear teaching of the Bible. By grace, sin is to be put to death in our lives. And by grace, righteousness is to be demonstrated in our lives. To... To grow in holiness, to, to demonstrate righteousness, all this comes as we are, by the power of the Spirit, putting sin to death. Um, 
as we, by the power of the Spirit, are repenting, as we're seeing sin in our life, even as it's just kind of on the, out on the horizon, I don't really want to go there, and repenting of even desires. There's, there's, a, there's a turning from, there's a, there's a by grace putting off the things that were once a part of us and putting on the things that are now a part of us because of Jesus. There is this practice of by grace repenting, by the, by the power of the Spirit choosing to love the things that Jesus loves and despise the things that Jesus despises. The thing about it is this may not take place. This may not take place at the speed that we want. If you've been a parent of a small child, you get that the there are certain developmental maturity, basic human dignity things that you kind of want them to figure out quickly. And then your wife reminds you that there are only three. And we figure out how to deal with that with our kids. But we're really not good about giving one another the same type of forbearance, are we? For growth and righteousness to change us and to manifest itself in us. It takes time. Show of hands really quickly as a human being, as an adult, how many of you have got everything figured out and you're right where you want to be? No, Jackie. No. Growth and holiness, growth and grace may not take place at the speed which we want or the extent to which we would desire, but it ought to be taking place, right? This is what it ought to be. We ought to be being changed. There ought to be something that's happening in us. Look at what he says in verse 3. In verse 3, he says, And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. Um, John is not expressing here a wish. Gee, guys, I hope everyone purifies themselves. Um, He's also not expressing it as a possibility. He's not saying everyone who hopes in Christ might purify himself. And this one's really important too. He doesn't state this as a command. He doesn't state it as a command. Look, he does not say everyone who hopes in Christ ought to purify themselves. No. What does he say? John simply states it as a fact. This is the fact of the matter. Our hope in Christ, having first appeared in Bethlehem, and our hope in his once appearing again as the ruling and reigning king, are met together with the seed of him who is in us, the spirit who is producing in us practical holiness. 
All of this is because we are united to God in Christ. We are made righteous by grace, and we are manifesting righteousness by grace. It is simply a fact of the matter, just as there are 24 hours in the day and the sun rises in the east and sets in the west, that you, if you are a child of God, there is righteousness that is going to happen in you because of the seed of him who is in you to the glory of him who has saved you. Does that make sense? Every Christian who has been saved is strengthened to practice holiness. So it's not enough then to to look at the text and generally apply it to our lives and say, Jesus has me covered, I'm good. So we talked in the uh, adult Bible class this morning about the sufficiency of Scripture. There is a sufficiency in the divine words that are present in Scripture. But we also talked about Scripture's authority. And one of the questions that we brought up about the authority of Scripture is, does Scripture have the right to confront us? Because when you take the Bible and just go to the favorite parts, when you just go to the comforting parts, when you just go to the parts that are, that are very special and sentimental and near, that's great. That, I'm not saying that's bad. What I am asking you is, does Scripture have the right to confront you? To hold up a mirror to your life and expose where there is fault. And once you see that, what are you going to do about it? Here's the question this text ought to raise. Christian, do past sins grieve you? Do you look at who you once were and find yourself legitimately grieved by what you you did, what you said, who you were? Do past sins grieve our hearts? Here's the second question that we ought to be asking in this text. Does the idea of striving to see sin put to death and and seeing Jesus be made more visible in our present lives genuinely make you excited? Does the idea of seeing sin put to death, the idea of seeing uh, Jesus be made more glorious and more manifest in your life as you are repenting, as you are turning from sin, as you are walking in grace through to the newness of life and obedience in Christ, does that generally say, that sounds like an amazing thing to do, I really want to do that? Do we rejoice in the fact that we all have Uh, that we have all that we need to turn from sin and live into God? Do we practice righteousness? Because what he says in verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices, who does righteousness, has been born of him. Do we practice righteousness? Does me asking that question run you back in your mind to the old tapes of all the times you have not practiced righteousness. 
of all the times you have looked at your life and you have fallen to sin, you have succumbed to temptation, you have failed to love God in thought and word and deed, both by what you have done and by what you have left undone, where do you go? Do you hear me asking the question, are you practicing righteousness? And do you immediately go to the old tapes? Because that's why there's a point two of the sermon. Yes, the fact of the matter is, as Christians, we are to be righteous. Here is where the command comes, and that is to behold who you are. Let me ask you a question. Honestly, honest question. Can you still be called a Christian if you habitually sin? What do you think? Can you still be called a Christian if you habitually sin? Yes. That's not... See, here's, here's the problem. When, when, you start, when you start wrestling with the reality of what the Bible teaches, when you start saying, the Bible should make us uncomfortable, that statement should make you uncomfortable. But look at what John said right back in chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. At what point do you think John is talking about your life? Then, now, in the future? Yes, it's all of it. John wasn't talking about sin in the, in the general sense. He was talking about sin in the specific sense. Here's the thing, I think Christians are going to struggle with sin in one of two ways. Either um, it's a particular sin or vice that seems to act like a thorn in the flesh that simply will not let them loose. Or there's just a continual cast of unrelated characters that parade through the days of our week that seem to have no rhyme or reason. It may be an immoral thought one day, it might be some sort of uh, crossword the next Sin is always going to be a part of our lives while we are on this side of glory. While we are walking by grace, sin is always going to be a part of our lives. The truth of the matter is that while we are presently freed from the dominion of sin in our lives, we are not yet freed from the corruption of sin in our lives. In other words, as Christians, we do not walk in sin, and yet there are going to be times when we fall into it. This is not something that we rejoice in. What shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means, Paul says. We don't rejoice in it. We don't revel in it. But we are continually practicing repentance. I am not yet who I ought to be. But I'm not who I once was. In his commentary on 1 John, William Barclay says this. He says, like Paul, John is not setting before us the terif- uh, an idea of terrifying perfectionism, but he is demanding a life which is ever on watch against sin, a life in which sin is not the normal accepted way, but the abnormal moment of defeat. Look at what he says in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 3. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us 
that we should be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you want to know where the one command is in the text? The exhortation, the imperative of the text? It's that word. See. Behold. Give your eyes to it. Give your attention to it. Fix your gaze upon this fact. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. This is where our gaze is fixed. It's not on the old tapes. It's not on the old tapes. It's not on the times where you failed. You have failed. You will fail. And you're going to fail again. It's not on all the ways that you don't deserve the love of God. You don't deserve the love of God. What the command is, is instead to see the love of God that he has shown you in Jesus Christ. And let that be the narrative that plays out in your head and your heart. You have been loved by God. You have been freed from the dominion of sin. You're being freed from the corruption of sin. And you will one day be freed from the presence of sin. The fact of the matter is, the thing that should play over and over in your head is not, I messed this up. You did mess this up. It's not, how could I have possibly done this any worse? Believe me, there are plenty of ways that you could have done it worse. The thing that plays over and over in your head is that God has rescued you and redeemed you and will one day resurrect you. See what type of love. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. If you're going to walk away having been told something to do, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. That's the command of the text. That's the point of where it's all going. Let sin grieve you. And let God's grace wash over you and cleanse you. Take the things that you've done and let them legitimately be a thing that you never want to go back to. Would the aroma of Jesus be so satisfying that it ruins you for everything else that the world has or could offer? Because all that you need and all that you could ever ask for has been given to you by God in Christ Jesus. These are the tapes we're commanded to replay over and over in our head. Not our identity apart from Christ. Not our misdeeds. Not our missteps. Not our falls. Not our follies. Not our record. Christ. This is what we're commanded to dwell on. And the beauty of our adoption will one day be surpassed by the beauty of his appearing. So why does John write this? Does he write it to to scare us? I don't think so. Is he writing it to comfort us? Maybe. I don't think so. Is he writing it to assure us? I don't think so. Now, I think that he's writing in part in order to show us 
that there is a disconnect for those who would say that they love Jesus and they still love the sin that abides in their lives. There's a disconnect there. That's a problem. Sin is not an acceptable trait for Christians. As we look at the the manner of love that we have been shown and, and live in our new position of righteousness, we are to be made ever mindful that sin in our lives is the exception and not the rule. We bear the image of the Son of God. And in that power, we are to be those who are sin-hating, sin-fighting, sin-repenting, grace-clinging image-bearers of Jesus. That's what our lives are to be ordered around. That's what the rhythm and the order and the, and the ebb and the flow of our lives is to be. And while there still may be sinful patterns or habits, some of which will be thorns in our flesh in our life, and some of which we have already or will have subdued, holiness is our prevailing pattern. Our life is not to be characterized by what it once was, but what it now is. A life that has been transformed by Jesus. I don't know how many of you have read much by um, Augustine. But here's what his prologue on his book on sermons that he gave on 1 John says. He says, the person who possesses the thing which he hears about in this epistle must rejoice when he hears it. His reading will be like oil to a flame. For others, the epistle should be like flame set to firewood. If it was not already burning, the touch of the word may kindle it. Friends, here's here's my hope. That if you aren't a believer in Jesus, that you would understand and know that apart from him, there is nothing. There is no hope. There is no, there is no height you can jump. There's no work you can do. There's no anything else that can satisfy the debt that is owed to a holy and righteous God. The only thing that you can do is cling to Jesus. That's it. If you today are a Christian and you have found your life is just soaring, the words of the gospel contained in the pages of this scripture be like oil to a flame. (laughs) May the flames kiss the sky. If you, however, have found yourself just languishing and struggling, know this. God is at work in you and in your heart. And his word, like those smoldering embers, will one day cause the fire to catch. Don't lose heart. Don't lose heart. Because though you might find your affections
at times divided. God's affection for you is not. He has never stopped advocating for you. He has never stopped loving you. And he's never going to leave you alone because he cares. Hallelujah.